Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host this week, Sarah Whitmire, co-hosting today with Mitch Legan. Today we're talking with our guests about new laws that take effect today in Indiana. These laws include Indiana residents no longer needing a permit to carry a handgun and the ban on transgender women participating in women's athletics. You can follow us on Twitter today at Noon Edition. Send us questions using the email news at indianapublicmedia.org or join us on the air by calling in 812-855-0811. The toll-free number is 877-285-9348. Today we have three guests joining us via Zoom. We have Dr. Laura Wilson, she's an associate professor of political science from the University of Indianapolis. Will Fight is the regional director of the National Association for Gun Rights and the director of legislation for the Hoosier Gun Rights. And Brandon Smith, a familiar voice as you listen here to WFIU. He's the State House reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Thanks to all of you for joining today. I want to start, I'm Mitch Legan, I know we had a story that ran this morning mm-hmm. on Morning Edition about this gun bill, and Brandon, you've done a lot of reporting on it, and why don't we just start by talking about that bill in particular, and Brandon, do you just want to, maybe you can start by just explaining the process of how this law um, was was passed? Yeah, it, it, it wasn't. I mean, it technically was passed this year, but this has been uh, a few years in the making. Uh, groups like Wills, um, who we'll hear you know from in a moment, I'm sure, uh, have been working to pass uh, permitless carry in Indiana for, for years. Um, we've seen permitless carry legislation passed in, in several states around the country, and so then it came to Indiana. Um, the, the bill is relatively straightforward, uh, at least the change it makes in state law. Uh, prior to this law, so prior to today, July 1st, 2022, um, in order to carry a handgun in public in Indiana, you had to get a license from the state to do so. And that involved submitting to a background check by the state police and having fingerprinting done, uh, going to your local, uh, a lot of times it was going to your local um, law enforcement agency's office as well. Um, and then you would get a license. And, and for years, those licenses cost money. You could get a short-term license, which was only for a few years, or you could get a lifetime license, which obviously costs more money. Um, a couple years ago, I want to say it was, or maybe even last year, lawmakers um, who were trying to pass permitless carry but couldn't get it over the finish line were able to make those licenses free. Um, but then finally this year, after uh, considerable debate over, again, the course of a, a number of years, they made it so that uh, if you are allowed to carry a handgun, you no longer have to get a license to do so. So to maybe work Will in here, uh, as Sarah said, I worked on that story this morning and spoke with people on kind of both sides of this issue. Will, can you kind of explain for us why is this such an important issue for you all and maybe gun owners here at large, the, as, as you guys call it, constitutional carry, right? Why is this, why is this so important for you all? Yeah, sure thing. So essentially the reason why we view 
us, you know, we being the National Association for Gun Rights, view constitutional carry as such an important issue for gun owners, um, is we look at those permits or licenses, licenses being the case in Indiana, uh, as, it's a, as a tax on your Second Amendment right. You know, Ultimately, when before they were free last year, uh, it was. You were being taxed by the state to carry your firearm and protect yourself. Um, once they made it free, you still had to jump through a lot of bureaucratic hoops, and uh, we view those as infringements on the Second Amendment. Um, so that's kind of why, you know, no matter what was going on with the permitting or licensing system here, if it was free, if it was not, we were determined to continue fighting for full constitutional carry and simply restoring the rights to carry to uh, pro-gun, you know, not, not just pro-gun, but all Hoosiers uh, that are proper persons. So I'm I'm curious, you know, in Brandon's reporting, he talked about the state police superintendent who was opposed to this bill. So I'm I'm curious, just from your perspective, and whether you think this is a safety issue. I I don't think it's a, a safety issue. Um, I don't what the all the other states that have passed constitutional carry legislation, um, they don't seem to have any uptick in violence. Uh, there was a gentleman who testified multiple times throughout this entire process in the uh, House and the Senate. He pulled all the FBI crime statistics. FBI crime statistics show that there aren't you know more felonious killings of police officers. Uh, violent crime does not rise uh, when these bills go into effect. And uh, interestingly enough, it was I think it was just yesterday I saw an article that was posted, uh, I believe, on Fox News of but it was a of a a study that was done and it found that when there are more people carrying firearms of violent uh, crime does not rise it does not you know i i, I could i don't want to say it, it lowers because i i don't have that right in front of me but it did it did find that uh violent crime does not rise so i think the police superintendent's view that it was going to you know cause a lot of more violence is, is very unfound and we say to that all through session and uh you know i'm still going to state it um but at the same time the police superintendent you know he didn't want to look at statistics of other states that have this legislation he said it in a committee hearing in the senate judiciary committee he said he doesn't he doesn't care about the other statistics um so i while i respectfully disagree with his view on it um it, i don't think it's a safety issue at all i think this is simply just going to i think this is going to make people safer but i don't think it's going to cause a bunch of wild west shootouts all over indiana so brandon can you can you chime in about how this changes what police can do if they pull someone over right and that was um a fundamental part of law enforcement's uh law enforcement organizations of opposition to the bill. You mentioned state superintendent, the state police superintendent, Doug Carter, who testified, um, notably testified against this in a, in a Senate committee hearing. Um, that was testimony unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Um, but uh, we also had the Indiana Chiefs of Police um, uh, who testified against it. The Indiana Prosecutors Association uh, testified against it. Um, you had the Indiana Sheriff's Association had previously been against the bill in previous sessions. This year, they did not take a position. They were neutral on it, though some sheriffs showed up in person to testify against it. Although we had a few police officers, um, like sort of frontline police officers, um, who came and testified in favor of the legislation. That should be noted. But yeah, the, the law enforcement's general opposition to this is that their view is that um, the licensing system was the only way for a police officer in the field to quickly know whether or not someone is allowed to be carrying a gun in public because they have a license. Um, without the licensing system, there's no way for a frontline police officer to quickly check that. And the reason that is, is because the licensing system, the time it took to go through that background check that I mentioned by the state police, the state police could, through that process, gather information from sources um, about, you know, national sources about, you know, criminal records and things like that that people on the front, that, that officers on the front line do not have legal access. So it's not as if, well, okay, well, you just have to create a new system. You legally can't, at least not quickly, um, find that information about people when they're, for instance, pulled over to traffic stop. Now, something that law enforcement officers said um, in, in opposition to this bill was that by getting rid of the permitting system, it's going to make traffic stops exponentially longer because police will now have to 
go through a, a much lengthier process to find the information about whether or not that person is allowed to be carrying in public. Because what the bill does is not say everyone can carry in public, period. It says if you are legally allowed to carry in public, you don't need a license. And so people who aren't allowed to carry in public include those who've been convicted of a felony, those who have a certain drunk driving uh, offenses on their record. I think it's two within a significant number of years, um, those who've been um, adjudicated for mental health issues. Um, again, not just, you know, oh, I've reported that I was depressed once. This is about sort of going through either committed to an institution or going through the legal process uh, in terms of that sort of thing, uh, as well as a few other reasons. So those people are still not allowed to carry in public. Law enforcement says it's a lot harder for them to know who those people are. So I don't know if this would be something for Brandon or Will, but we have a question from Valerie from the phones. She wants to know if you paid for a permit in the past, is is there some sort of refund that people can get here? Or are they, you know, just kind of, I know they're going to continue giving out permits for other states, but if you paid in the past, can you get some, some sort of refund for this? Uh, I, I can take that. And you, you won't be receiving any refund, but I advise you to continue, you know, if, it, if it's a five year or if it's a lifetime, keep that permit because the permit or the license, pardon me, the, the licensing system is still very much in place. It is just simply optional. So if you're going if to need it for reciprocity purposes, um, if you're going to other states, uh, granted, Kentucky and Ohio, uh, both have constitutional carry legislation. Uh, but for Michigan, for example, if you go up to Michigan a lot, make sure you keep that. Um, if you go to Missouri, Missouri's constitutional carry as well. But it's always good if you're going to another state and you're not sure if they have this legislation to have that permit. Um, because I, in my knowledge, the majority of states uh, have reciprocity with the uh, handgun permit, licensing permit uh, here in Indiana. Okay. Well, and just to jump and just to, sorry, just to add to what Will just said, he's absolutely right, of course. Um, but also, as he pointed out, the, the, the permitting system is still in place and you can still get a carry permit today and going forward. You still can get that permit, it, as he pointed out, because other states still require it. And you can have that reciprocity so that, you know, you can get your permit in Indiana if you live here, even though you don't need it to carry here anymore. So that you can still carry in other states. Laura, I want to let you weigh in here because all of this comes at a time when we've had the, you know, the terrible shootings in Uvalde, Texas, the one in Buffalo, New York. Um, and for folks who um, who are trying for gun reforms, right, then some of them are, are curious about the optics of doing something like this at this time. So I'm curious what you think about just moving forward in advocacy for any sort of stricter gun laws in Indiana. Is there ever going to be an appetite for something like that? It, the timing is really interesting. And, and even in addition to what you're saying, uh, if we look historically over the last 30 years and, and how different states have handled um, gun laws, gun rights and gun restrictions, and then, of course, what we've done in the state of Indiana, I always balk at the idea that one particular event is going to suddenly change people's perspectives and not that it can't. But we know the way that political memory and political psychology works is, is people will prioritize things that matter to them. They will accept concepts and ideas that reaffirm what they already believe. And they're more likely to reject those that do not align with what they already believe, which isn't to say that they can't change their minds. Um, but we would need to see a series of events and people would have to have really a kind of a change of values because it's not just one particular thing um, that would cause all of a sudden a flip in that. I, I've, one of the things I find really interesting here is looking at Indiana, we're not the only state that made this change that is effective essentially today. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho all have a similar policy. And going back again to decades ago, you've seen a change in the wind to actually having fewer of these laws. There was a point where more states had more restrictions on right to carry. And at the moment, you see fewer of those restrictions. More of those have been taken out. It, it tells us a little bit, I think, in terms of the balance of power and what people see um, in, in being valuable, what they think people ought to have a right to, to do. Um, but to the question of the individual events with Uvalde or Buffalo, I go through lists. I don't know that those make the same kind of impact in people's 
decision-making here. And you can look historically to see how that's changed over time. And it can still certainly change in the future. I things ebb and flow. And then also state-wise, because as, uh, as Will mentioned, and Brandon also added this too, that different states have those different policies. Um, we've seen more states become more involved in this issue and those have changed too. Uh, so I, I, to me, that is the fascinating part of federalism. It's also the fascinating part of what's going on right now across the country in terms of this issue of who has the right to decide this. Um, and when states have the right, where do states go in terms of that direction? I think those are all really important aspects of the conversation. And kind of I wanted to add one. I wanted to add one thing on top of that, because Laura talked about how things have been changing in this regard um, a few years ago. Um, the General Assembly was debating legislation that would have um, gotten rid of a lot of gun restrictions. It might have been permitless carry, in fact, um, but I, I don't want to say that for sure. But it was something like that. The legislature was debating that bill. It looked like it was going to pass. And then the Parkland school shooting happened in Florida. And legislative leaders, uh, notably, I remember Brian Bosma, decided that the optics of that to pass a bill rolling back gun restrictions just after this, this hor horrific shooting in Florida um, wouldn't have been a good idea. And so they, they sidelined that bill and it didn't pass this year. And, and, but I think, you know, that momentum to pass the bill has just built and built and built to the point where I don't think anything would have stopped it from happening this year. You know, and I have to, I actually have to agree with, with Brandon as well. The momentum of these types of legislation, even from our standpoint, you know, in the, where the, you know, the pro-gun pro advocacy groups, you know, it was pretty crazy to watch, you know, last year, especially, I think we got five states that passed constitutional carry. This year we got another five. So it's really just been a, a, a snowball effect of all these states um, deciding that they wanted to um, restore the right to carry. Um, I, like I believe this year we got, we got Indiana, Ohio, uh, Georgia, um, among others, I know we had Utah last year. It's in it's just really Texas example for last year. Texas got this legislation, so it's just there's been a massive amount of momentum over the last two years of these of states joining the constitutional carry club, so to speak, um, and it's it's quite interesting. And so, kind of piggybacking off of that. Um, I, referencing the story again that we ran this morning, I spoke with people on both sides of this issue, and I spoke with a gun shop owner um, who said, you know, over the years that his he's obviously big, staunch Second Amendment supporter, but he's kind of come around to the the idea of maybe expanding background checks for personal gun sales. Um, as we said, you know, after these these types of incidents that talk about gun reform pops back up, Will is is there anything you know that your group might be interested in in that in that gun reform sense it's strengthening red flag laws things like that um you know any any kind of common ground that uh, might be able to be found with people who would like to maybe see some sort of reform after these two shootings that we've seen uh we are actually a no compromise uh organization so in especially in regards to red flag laws we uh we actually oppose red flag laws uh you know on the grounds of uh due process okay um so i mean yeah, i know especially in indiana that is, you know, that's a hard hill to climb uh, for us. Um, but, you know, it's something we, you know, passionately believe in. Um, so, you know, if, if we're going to talk about, you know, the federal bill that just passed uh, our national organization, we, you know, vehemently oppose that. Um, so and, and I know that's like a, that's a controversial thing to say right now. You know, gun control is a, is a huge issue um, for a lot of people, especially after Uvalde. Um, I know you, know you look at Uvalde and it's just it's very confusing on a lot of things <laughs> on how that happened. You know, it's like every day something new comes out about it and you just go, oh, my goodness, are you serious? Mm -hmm. and, but it's in regards to, you know, those middle ground uh, type of legislation. And we don't you know, we, we don't find middle ground. We we stick to our guns and we're you know passionate about our, our beliefs and we don't compromise on them. Can can you kind of take us into that due process aspect that you mentioned right there? So, yeah, it, uh, with, without my notes sitting in front of me, I'd, I'd have a little bit. But, you know, when it comes to red flag, you don't get to stand in front of a judge and you don't get to, you know, they don't they don't have you there when they decide that you are, you know, unfit to possess firearms. Um, so you know, we'll use, you know, Indiana has it. Um, 
well, I'll use Florida as an example as well. Florida has them. Uh, Indiana doesn't have the rampant issue that Florida has. But in Florida, if you just make a phone call to a police station and say, hey, this person I think is dangerous, they don't really look into it. And they'll just tell a judge, the judge will sign an order, and they'll kick your door in and take your firearms. Um, so I think last time I checked, there was over 20,000 red flag orders that were followed through in states like in, in Florida specifically. But, you know, that's kind of where the due process thing comes in, into it. And, you know, they just show up at your door and they take it. You don't know why, what's going on. And I think in a way that's quite dangerous for the officers that are put in the position of doing that. Um, there are instances where, you know, the door kicks in it's the middle of the night and you go to protect your family and you don't know why someone's there to take your firearms. And suddenly, you know, you get in a shootout. Um, and, and, you know, and then the fact that you can just make an anonymous tip is, is just it just reeks of you know big state abuse and i know that's going to sound super libertarian of me <laughs> the big state uh, abuse part but it just it doesn't sit right with me and it doesn't sit right with us as an organization to uh to not have that due process in there you know it's a we, we view it as a constitutional infringement um about the second and the fourth amendment Okay. Today you're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking about laws that go into effect today. If you have questions for our guests, you can email news at indianapublicmedia.org or call in at 812-855-0811. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition. Will, I want to thank you for being on the program. We're going to switch gears because we've got a a whole list of, of laws here to cover. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Will. So I think next maybe we'll talk about transgender girls athletes. Um, Let's do it. Brandon, I don't. Can you just explain to us a little bit about what what this law does? And if if I'm correct here, Holcomb vetoed this. Yes. This is one of them that he vetoed. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the laws that he vetoed, and lawmakers easily overrode it. Um, in, in Indiana, you have a relatively weak veto by the governor. Um, all that it takes to override a veto in this state is a simple majority in each chamber. And in order for a law to get to the governor's desk, it has to be passed by a simple majority in each chamber. So presumably they always have the votes to override a veto. Um, doesn't mean they override everyone, but it makes it pretty easy when they want to. Uh, so yeah, so again, um, much like the gun bill, the bill itself is relatively straightforward. It says that uh, for school sports, and that's high school and below, this importantly does not apply to college. The bill originally did, but then it was immediately stripped out without explanation. The the guess, if you wanted to take a guess at the explanation, the fact that the NCAA is headquartered in Indiana might have something to do with that. Hmm. But for girls' school sports, high school and below, um, you can only play when it comes to girls. This does not importantly apply to boys. You can only play the sport to the sex that you were assigned at birth. So for trans girls, they are banned from playing girls' school sports. They are not banned from playing sports. They could play sports with boys, but they are banned from playing girls' school sports. Proponents argue that this is, a, this is about fairness, that, that if you were assigned male at birth um, and, and transitioned to being a girl, that you would have an unfair advantage over other girls. Uh, there's not a lot of science to back that up. Um, and opponents of this bill say you're really just attacking trans girls for no reason. On top of which, the uh, part of the reason that the governor vetoed the bill was that the Indiana High School Athletic uh, Association already has a policy and procedure in place for cases where a trans girl wants to play girls sports. They mm-hmm. have a procedure in place to make sure that that's done fairly. and. As far as we can tell, this affects one human being in the state of Indiana. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I spoke with the IHSA for one of the stories that I did. They've had, uh, they didn't know when the policy went into effect, but it was around 2010, 2011. They had a trans boy who wanted to run cross country. And then uh, they did have a trans girl who started an application, but she never finished it. So, um, and I, I kind of remember Holcomb had said that this was not necessarily an issue that required government uh, intervention. That was his kind of conservative reasoning behind it. But I guess, Laura, does this does this ban in any way, does this impact Title IX? You know, I, I believe the ACLU is suing over this kind of, what kind of legal ramifications could this have? 
Well, they are absolutely. The ACLU is involved in a lawsuit as soon as the veto was overridden. Um, you saw that come into play. And there are, there are a lot of legal questions about um, a Title IX and just generally the equality within sports. I think one of the interesting angles that maybe doesn't get discussed quite enough on this issue is looking at public opinion and whether or not the policies are reflecting public opinion, if they're congruent or if they're very different. But there was a great poll done by NPR and Axios, Axios, excuse me, um, a month ago, essentially, where they, they asked people, do you support allowing transgender female student athletes to compete on women's and girls sports teams? And probably not surprising, uh, the responses were very partisan. Uh, but generally, the overall, if you added Republicans, Democrats, and independents together, um, there's 10% that strongly support it and 43% that strongly oppose it. And this is just a larger national frame. So it's not looking specifically at the Indiana law. As Brandon mentioned, it this applies differently to um, people that were born female versus people that were born male. And there are a lot of legal questions there, but I think it does reflect some of the public opinion issues we're seeing, some of the general thoughts and feelings of Americans. And one of the tricky things is when you have policy that follows public opinion, it, the public opinion is a short, quick question and a, a temperature sampling of how do you feel? Are you too supported? Are you against it? it doesn't allow for the kind of nuances that you often have to incorporate in a law and, and you have to consider in a policy. It is not a quick answer. It's not a, a quick problem to address with an easy solution. And I think all those complexities are really what we're seeing play out. And that's certainly what the ACLU is in part suing um, the state for. It is some of the issues where they see a contradiction of this in terms of constitutional rights and liberties and what the law puts forth. Laura, I'd love to hear what you have to say, um, just your opinion on what this says about gender equality with, with Brandon saying this does not apply to men. Well, that is, I think, probably the the craziest part about it, because you'd say, but why not? If it was, I mean, if we think of equality in the true sense of, of equal or same in that way, uh, it doesn't seem to be, quite frankly, fair. But I understand also a lot of the complexities. And I'd just say in in my perspective and opinion, just as a person, you know, with political science interests, I think this is where you get into more of those complicated nuances. Because if we say that we're going to treat people in the fair way and the in the equitable way, then to to do it where we're saying, no, 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 just applies to women or just applies to men or doesn't, then we're not taking into account some of those differences. And we are we're making um, probably artificial differences, quite frankly, different structures and barriers. So I, I don't think it, I don't think it fulfills the argument that it claims to in that way. Okay, you're listening to Noon Edition. If you have questions for our panelists today, you can call us at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or tweet us at Noon Edition. We're talking today about new laws that go into effect today. Brandon, how about we talk about the billion dollar tax cut and? To be clear, this is separate from the $225 refund that Holcomb has been talking about? Yeah, it's it's separate from the $120 or whatever it was, um, the $125 uh, refund that was triggered last year because the state collected way more money than, than we thought they were going to. And then the inflation relief proposal that the governor is pushing that would be $225 per taxpayer um, that could take place later this summer when they finally get in the special session. All of that is separate from the tax cut package that we're talking about. So this billion dollar tax cut package is primarily two tax cuts. One of them takes effect today, July 1st. The other, we wait until at least January and then further down the line. So let me explain them. Uh, the first one that takes effect immediately is, or, or today, is um, they are eliminating two utility taxes. Um, now those are things that Everybody who pays uh, for utilities, uh, it shows up on their bill. And after the first of this month, it should no longer be showing up on their bill. Unfortunately, for the average homeowner, uh, this applies to anybody who's paying utilities, but for the average Hoosier who pays those utility taxes on their on their house, that's, or their apartment, um, a couple bucks a month at, at most kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's a much bigger deal if you're a big business or, you know, a factory who's using tons of, uh, of power and 
utilities, et cetera. Um, the other tax cut, which is the bulk of the bill, is a reduction in the individual income tax. Now, that's going to take the rate from 3.23%, which is where it's been or where it is right now, and it'll eventually cut that rate down to 2.9%. But that will happen over the next half decade. Hmm. The first the first cut will take effect January 1st, when it will go down to 3.15%. And then we'll wait two more years until 2025 for another reduction, and then another reduction in 2027, and then another reduction in 2029. And the only way that those cuts in 25, 27, and 29 will happen is if Indiana's state revenues are growing by at least 2% over a budget cycle. Um, so basically, if the state is losing money, they're not going to put those tax cuts into place until it starts making money again. Um, and, and again, when we're talking about impact, so this first cut that will be automatic, it will happen no matter what, starting January 1st. If you make $50,000 a year, you'll save about 40 bucks a year. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting, especially the one you mentioned about utilities. It's interesting because I know we just did a story today that Duke is raising its rates 14 or 16 percent. So when you're talking about what the tax cut is going to be, it's still not really going to even out. But it's interesting. Um, Laura, I'm assuming that you're not really it doesn't feel like there's much room for lawmakers to cut taxes in a lot of ways. They've been whittling away at them over the past decade plus they they have and i think generally that's been obviously taxes are not terribly popular so when you're able to to cut them in different ways people appreciate it they respond during election season and that is of course uh, employment security job security for those elected officials making the decisions it's also been very easy when we've brought in surplus and recently when we've seen that even seeing what taxpayers will get in addition to what they were already going to get back. It is their money, so they already paid it, right? You're just getting it back. It's not new money, but nonetheless, it does make a difference. I think there's always the political ramifications at play here. And no doubt, no one thinks about that more thoughtfully than a lawmaker whose job will be on the line. But but thinking about what this does for them and what the long term is, and some, I think, are very artful in this and, and others maybe a little bit less so, but understanding it's not just their careers, but what is this doing for state surplus? Sure. State revenue, where we need to spend money, where we desperately lack revenue, where we could reallocate some funds that might make a large difference, even though it's a really small amount. I think those larger questions are hard to tackle because they're not going to be uniform in opinion. There's going to be a lot of diversity over what people think we should be do, but they're also essential to consider. And it's easy to give people money back in a lot of ways. And that's a, certainly not a bad thing, most especially with inflation and gas prices. People need you know, lower affluent Hoosiers really need this money back. And at the same time, we can think of other places where the state could possibly infuse that cash into making what the state does, the services that they provide better. And I think that that's a really tricky balance that we don't always do the best job towing, quite frankly. Laura, can you kind of switch gears here for a second? Can you take us through the election security law that kind of goes into effect here, moves that date up for, um, I believe it was voting machines. You know, why why is this important? Why are we why are we moving things up right now? Um, you know, why is this important? Yeah, well, election security, just as a, a the quick history, and then I that was there was really nothing that we talked about for several decades that was not seen as a big issue that wasn't even really a big question ironically probably when it may have actually concerns about people with voter fraud that might have been more rampant uh, it's become a major talking point across the country over several uh, several years and i think we see that in indiana in particular a couple of reasons but uh, we just had the Republicans with their state convention, and you saw this bitter fight over the Secretary of State. I can't believe that that was a race that total was estimated around a million dollars. And that's not a primary election. That is not a general election. That was a convention race. It's really remarkable how 
how much energy was infused into that. But one of the questions was how secure can we make our elections? How how tight can we make these parameters? How strict and restrictive can those restrictions be uh, to eliminate any possibility, any likelihood of potential voter fraud? And of course, playing out in the Republican Party, this is a major talking point and issue. I think in part because of that, where you saw um, the incoming Secretary of State not selected by the delegates of the convention, there's I think there's that political dynamic in play too. There's also the larger issue that looms at federal issues right now where you have the January 6th testimony and understanding what happened nationally, perspectives about election laws, perspectives about security that are a major issue. I think all of these things kind of wrap up to why something that is certainly vitally important to a democracy, elections are the lifeblood of a democratic government, but also haven't traditionally been thought of that seriously, are now at the forefront of a lot of voters' minds and a lot of talking points in terms of what we expect from our government and what we wanna see in elections going in, into the future. Laura, you mentioned the the, conven- the GOP convention a couple of weeks back. I wanna maybe ask Brandon, because he was there, um, I mean, we've we've seen the legislature kind of going at it with the governor here. That if I remember, the convention got a little uh, chippy. Maybe you know, are we are we seeing some infighting in the GOP right now? What are you kind of picking up in your day to day coverage of, uh, of some of these issues within the party? We are absolutely seeing infighting within the Indiana Republican Party apparatus. Um, the question remains: what sort of impact that has on the larger voting populace, right? Because uh, a convention convention delegates do not necessarily reflect the larger voting population at either party uh, convention in this state or or in most or any states. Um, So it's important to to kind of put that in context. I I don't see how you can see, how you can look at Diego Morales beating Holly Sullivan at the GOP convention and not see that as a rebuke by delegates of uh, Governor Holcomb. And this goes back to um, really the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of, um, well, a certain subset of the Republican Party, um, arch conservatives, were very angry with the governor over the decisions he made during the earliest days of the pandemic. So the stay-at-home order, the mask mandate, um, promoting vaccines in general, you know, as he should. Um, they were very angry with him about that. And lawmakers didn't do a lot to rein him in. And so that wing of the party decided, well, the way to take out our frustration against the governor was to go after his hand-picked Secretary of State. Holly Sullivan was not elected to be Indiana's Secretary of State. She was replacing Connie Lawson, who retired in the middle of her her last term and was appointed to that position by Governor Holcomb. Um, So this was a way for them to take out their frustration on Governor Holcomb and his sort of wing of the Indiana Republican Party. But you also have to remember that Eric Holcomb won the governor's race in 2020, after all of those relatively unpopular, if you want to call them that, decisions he made during the pandemic, won the governor's race with more votes than anyone had ever received for that race. So, yes, there is infighting in the Indiana Republican Party, but I don't know that it spreads much further beyond those sort of party apparatus functions. This is another show, but I'm going to be really curious to talk to you more about how that's going to affect the election later this year. But for now, talking about new laws, I, I want to get you to weigh in on this coerced abortion bill. Does that even does that even matter right now, Brandon, given Roe v. Wade being overturned? I mean, it does for the next at least month or so. Um, uh, Indiana abortion is still legal in Indiana at this moment. And it is going to be through at least July because lawmakers won't meet in a special session to curb abortion rights, if not end them entirely, until July 25th, as we now learned this week. Um, So for the next month, at least, yes, it matters. Um, Arguably doesn't won't have a huge impact. The the bill says bill sort of makes its own crime that you cannot coerce an abortion, um, which. Uh, uh, you know, opponents of this bill said, well, that's already a crime. It's just not called coerced abortion. It's called coercion. Um, But the the more significant impact of this is the way it requires um, uh, people who suspect coercion uh, to report it to police and then requires police to immediately investigate it. And what folks who who, um, provide abortions in this state argued was, you know, we're trained to to identify when someone is being coerced. And if we do that, we have procedures in place 
for how to best help that person. But what you're doing is tying our hands and forcing police to get involved, which could actually make the situation more dangerous. Mm. Because a lot of times if police show up, they aren't going to be able to necessarily arrest the person who's coercing the, 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 the patient immediately. And so what you are potentially doing is alerting this, you know, potentially abuser. Uh, you are alerting this abuser, oh, this person ratted you out. Now you're going to send them home with that could create a problem. Again, it's unlikely to come up very much, especially in the relatively short amount of time where abortion will still be legal in this state. Um, but yeah, it could have an impact. And I guess kind of staying on the abortion issue, obviously the GOP here has you know, talked about they desperately want to protect life and they were going to come in, I think it was the 6th to do that, and they've pushed that back to the 25th. And I've read a couple stories now that people are actually coming to Indiana to get abortions, um, which is which is interesting to me, but I guess what what can we expect, Brandon? Have you talked with anybody, or I guess Laura? Do you, do you you know what can we expect from these abortion restrictions that we assume will be put in place here? You know, on the uh, on the twenty fifth of July. Yeah, there's still not a clear idea of exactly what that bill is going to look like, but I can tell you this: lawmakers will ban abortion in almost every case, for sure. The question now is whether there will be any exceptions that they allow under the law. And those exceptions being generally um, whether they will allow it in the case of, of rape, of incest, or when the life of the pregnant person is at risk. I would guess, if, and this is just a personal from covering abortion for a decade in the state and talking to lawmakers, I would guess that if there's any exceptions they allow, it is only when the life of the pregnant person is at risk. And I'm not even sure that that'll be the case. It's possible that they will ban abortion outright, outright and condemn to death anyone who would die without an abortion. So Laura, what I mean, what are your, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? What kind of effect would that have um, here in Indiana? Well, a tremendous effect. Uh, certainly, as Brandon's saying, Though the state, it, it just seems impossible to think the state won't ban it. it. It is the little nuances and the questions of these certain exceptions and contexts. And there are a lot of other contexts and exceptions that other states might consider that don't seem to be very plausible or feasible here. So if we were talking about a certain time period, uh, you know, you you could make the scope as large or as small as possible. And given its conservative history, we would expect a very small scope from the state legislature. I, I agree with Brandon's assessment there in terms of the life of the pregnant person. And I, I think this is where it'll be interesting to see with that special session. Initially, it was called for next week. And then when you actually had the decision of Dobbs Jackson come out and, and very clearly, like this is not just gonna be doling out an extra billion in cash. So actually, we're gonna have to decide a policy that has been overturned after decades, a policy that Republicans, conservatives, certainly social conservatives have been fighting some of them their entire lives to have. Now you have to discuss and you have to determine and you have to decide what are those exceptions? What are the contexts? And they're likely to be very restrictive in the state. But I do think you'll also see some dissension, some conflict within the party itself. Republicans do have a supermajority, but there will likely be some lawmakers who say, well, with the exception of um, life in danger, you know, or with the exception of rape or incest. And there'll be others that say no, no exceptions, no context, no no background in that way. That That's where I think you will have the discussion and the dissension, but ultimately where the decision will lie for the future of the state on that policy. I don't know if you can answer this, Laura, but I, you know, I think Wisconsin and Missouri were a couple of these states that had trigger laws as soon as Roe was overturned their abortion bans went into effect. Indiana's seen as, you know, a very conservative state becoming more conservative in recent years. Why didn't Indiana have a trigger law in place? To the best of my understanding, we, though we're conservative, we're also kind of conservative in our institutions, meaning they are not um, easily changed <laughs> and the policies okay. themselves and the processes themselves are not easily changed. And you do think you see that difference relative to Wisconsin, Missouri, or a couple other states uh, where they can make those changes much more efficiently and quickly in case that's in place. I, I, I think it's interesting that we didn't have those given how 
ardently conservative, especially at this moment, our state legislature and even our governor with the remarks he's made in terms of redlining, you know, not having any redlining on this piece of legislation, why we didn't have those. But to my the best of my understanding, the way the policies and the processes are, they're slow and impervious to change in that way. And that's intentional. Uh, but that also means we don't have those kind of different nuances institutionally that you might see in some other states, like you said, as Wisconsin and, and Missouri do have. Yeah. I want to I can speak a little to this, too. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, we should differentiate a little between some states trigger laws. So in some cases, you had states where they put in laws in place very recently that would go, take effect if the Supreme Court overturned Roe. In the case of Wisconsin, it's a law that was still on the books for over 100 years and obviously couldn't have been enforced since Roe. But then once Roe was uh, the rights under Roe were, were stripped away, then and then there's there's actually a legal fight over whether or not the law actually has now taken effect or not because of that. So Indiana didn't have anything on its books from before 1973 that banned abortion outright, which is partly why we didn't have a trigger law. Uh, to Laura's point, uh, Indiana doesn't often do things like that where we put in new laws, but only if something happens. We did do that a couple of years ago um, when there was a, a uh, a, a legal battle at the U.S. Supreme Court over online sales taxes being collected and, and what could and could not be collected in each state. Uh, Indiana actually put in a law in place that was triggered once the Supreme Court handed down a favorable ruling. So we have done it before. But legislative leaders this year, uh, Laura's right, there is an, it's an incredibly, incredibly conservative General Assembly. But what le legislative leaders said this year about why they didn't put a law into place that would be triggered by the Supreme Court's decision is that they weren't sure what the Supreme Court was going to say. Now, by the time lawmakers adjourned, there was still a strong possibility, or at least believed to be a strong possibility, that the court wouldn't necessarily overturn all abortion rights, but might just uphold the Mississippi law in question, which banned abortions after 15 weeks. There was some who thought maybe, well, maybe they'll do it down to six weeks or they could ban a row uh, or ban abortion or allow abortion bans completely without knowing exactly what that was it was hard to write a law that could be triggered by a supreme court uh, action so they decided it was just easier for them to wait and do a special session we only have about five minutes left and Brandon, an issue I know you've covered a lot in years past has been when they did the whole criminal code reform. And the bill this year is HEA 10004. Feels like we're rolling that back. Is that saying that a lot of these reforms didn't work? That's a really good question. Um, it depends a little on who you ask. So you're absolutely right. Uh, 1004 this year does undo a policy that lawmakers did when they reformed the state's criminal code a decade ago. And that was a decade ago, they said, OK, people who are convicted of low level nonviolent felonies, and that was level six felonies, the lowest felony level, those people aren't going to go into the prison system because at the time the issue was, well, if we send them to the prison system, we're only making things worse. Recidivism rates are worse when you send them into the prison system. If we keep them locally, in community corrections programs, we can help rehabilitate them and make sure they don't reoffend, or at least give them a better shot at not reoffending and re-entering life. That idea is still true. The problem is that the state in the past decade really didn't set up a good apparatus for those community corrections programs, and particularly when it comes to mental health and addiction treatment programs, because that's what a lot of these low-level, nonviolent um, offenders really need. It's, it's drug problems. It's mental mm. health problems. And so without community adequate um, uh, treatment programs at the local level, a lot of times these people are, and, and especially without community corrections programs too, they're just sitting in local county jails. And sheriffs who run those jails say, listen, we can't help these people. We want to help these people, but I don't have the money to, to give them the treatment that they need. And over the past decade, the Indiana prison system has added more of those programs in its prisons. And so this year's bill was a reflection of the fact that 
for some offenders, putting them in a state prison might actually be better for them because they can get access to the services they so desperately need. And so what the bill does is it says a judge has the option. They don't have to, but they have the option to say, if the prison is the best place for this person, that's where they're going to be. And Brandon, did the state ever give more money to communities to build treatment centers? Or was that that? Uh, there has been, yeah, there's been a variety okay. of, uh, of programs over the years uh, for community corrections, for some uh, treatment at the local level, but and the state has been trying to do um, more mental health uh, treatment options around the state. Uh, Governor Holcomb has been a leader in trying to to get more um, mental health treatment centers set up around the state. Um, that progress is slow. And if you talk to a lot of advocates, they say the the amount of money the state has spent isn't within fathoms of being where it needs to be. Okay. We only have about a minute left, but Brandon, I, I got to ask you here real quick. What other laws that don't go in, into effect today, maybe that are going to go into effect later, should we be thinking about? A big one is affecting kids, which is that the state is uh, getting a little more serious about screening kids for lead poisoning, which has lifelong effects on a child's health. Um, Every child under the age of six is going to be screened for lead in this state by a healthcare provider uh, if they go and see a healthcare provider. That, though, doesn't take effect until January 1st. So starting January 1st of 2023, every kid under six who sees a healthcare provider should be getting screened for lead. Okay. Lara and Brandon, it's always great talking with you two. Thank you so much for joining the program today. And Will Fight, who joined us for the first half of the program, thanks to him as well. And Mitch Legan, thanks for co-hosting today. Thanks for letting me on. Um, That is all the time we have. And I want to thank our engineer, Mike Pashkash, producers, Ben Boothier, Kathy Knapp, and Nathan Moore. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients. From initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support for WFIU comes from our sustainers and from Eskenazi Museum of Art, presenting positive fragmentation from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation, opening July 14th. More at artmuseum.indiana.edu.